Let's open up our Bibles to Romans chapter 11. Romans chapter 11. We're diving right in. We got a lot to cover tonight. I hope you guys are awake and alert. If not, you see your neighbors starting to doze off, slap them hard in the face. I'll laugh for about a second or two, and then we'll keep going. That was not the, the, the opportunity to talk, unless you're helping your friend find Romans chapter 11. It's in the Bible. Romans chapter 11. The title of tonight's message at the top of your study sheet is The Ghost of Israel Future. We've been on this kick for a couple weeks now where the Apostle Paul in his discourse on the playbook for righteousness has taken a little bit of a parenthesis out to talk about the nation of Israel. And he does this in three chapters, chapters 9, 10, and 11, which comes in a very interesting spot because he just went through what salvation genuinely is and how it is Christ at God's expense making himself poor so that we might be rich, dying on the cross for our sins. Talks about for all of us who trust in him by faith, we're justified. And then how we start to walk this life being obedient to his command. But then he takes this little pause in these three chapters here, and he talks very simply about Israel's past, their present, and tonight, their future. And I'm telling you guys, and I hope you've kind of began to see it, it's been a lot that we've covered. It's a lot of Old Testament passages. There's a lot of what's going to happen in the future, as we'll soon see tonight. But, man, I hope you guys really, really, truly get just how valuable and how needed Paul needed to take this section of Scripture out just to put off a little space of grace to talk about Israel because I'm telling you what, so many churches get off on this. What did we see in chapter 9? He was talking about their past... Their past... Anybody remember? It's been, what, three weeks now? Didn't we have a week off? Yeah, Thanksgiving. Thank you. Good job. Their past election, which is just another word for what? Thank you. When they chose to obey God, when they chose in the book of Exodus to apply the blood of that Passover lamb to their doorpost of their door, when they chose by faith to take God's word... And he says, you know what, if I see that blood on the doorpost of your house, I am going to pass over and I will not visit you with death. When they chose by faith to believe God's word, he chose to use them and deliver them so that he could serve, they could serve him in the wilderness. And then chapter 10, we saw their present what? Rejection. Whoopsies. That's not how you spell it. Election, rejection, and tonight we're going to see their future resurrection. Pretty simple to remember, isn't it? Hopefully. Put it in your Bible if you don't remember. That's what I do, and it helps. It helps me when I'm going through these chapters I'm reading. I'm like, okay, what's the context of this chapter about? Oh, yeah, boom, boom, boom. 
easy that way. That's why God made this book the Discourse of Biblical New Testament Doctrine. On your outline, tonight we conclude Paul's parenthetical section of Romans answering the question, where do we fit the nation of Israel into this age of grace? Chapter 9, we saw Israel's election. Chapter 10, Israel's rejection. Chapter 11 will demonstrate unequivocally Israel's future resurrection. As I've already alluded to, and you guys might want to underline this. You might want to double underline this one. Ooh, not too often do I mention a double underline. This must really be important. All false... Oh, sorry, I skipped a sentence. It cannot be overstated just how important this chapter is to our fundamental understanding of sound doctrine. That phrase, sound doctrine, it means good doctrine. It means good teaching from the Bible. Because... For anything that is sound, that means that there's also something that's unsound, it's unsavory, it's not good. And for there being sound doctrine that is taught in the Bible, there's also a lot of unsound teaching, a lot of unsound doctrine that is, that is taught in a lot of churches today. And mark this down too. All false doctrine in churches today stem from a misappropriation of this chapter in the misguided thinking that the church has forever replaced the nation of Israel. Yeah, I caught that, uh, actually, just as I was briefly looking over my notes tonight, and I kind of wish I would have maybe revised that sentence a little bit. Uh, it's not so much that churches today misappropriate this chapter, because if anything... Chapter 11 is one of the greatest chapters that helps illustrate the fact that God is not done with the nation of Israel. If anything, this is one of the most avoided chapters in all of the Scripture, in all of the Bible, by many pastors, Bible teachers, Bible scholars, so-called. It's mostly ignored by them because of how glaring it is that God's not done with Israel. So God clearly warns against this teaching back on your outline. Look at verse 25. Not to jump ahead, but if there's a key verse that you could say summarizes this chapter, it's verse 25. He says, For I would not, brethren, that ye, you, should be ignorant of this mystery. But I'll tell you what, the word ignorant doesn't show up that much in the Bible, but when it does, it packs a wallop of a gut punch. You don't want to be ignorant about certain things that show up in the Bible. And here he's saying this one specifically. Don't be ignorant of this mystery, lest ye should be wise in your own conceits. And I'm telling you guys, if you only knew how deep the rabbit hole went, you'd be amazed at how many churches think they're wise in their own self-deception on this very issue. That God is done with Israel. The lie that God is done with Israel. But here's what he says. Here's what you need to know. Here's what you need to not be ignorant of. That blindness in part is happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. We're going to talk about this later tonight. But on your outline, in parenthesis, you also see Revelation 2.9 and Revelation 3.9. Those are passages that God is speaking in church history. If you guys, those of you guys who were here back in the fall... Was it the fall or was it the summer? I can't remember when we did it now. Wintertime, springtime, when we covered church history in the book of Revelation, where God is saying, man, you know what? You better be careful of those who say they are Jews, but are not. A lot of churches say things like, well, you see, this passage in the Old Testament, it applies to us now because God's done with Israel. God's no longer working through the nation of Israel, so it applies to us. 
on your outline, final page or final part of the introduction there, we will not remove that ancient landmark. Those are the phrase that's found in the book of Proverbs talking about the nation of Israel, how they are the ancient landmark. You remove Israel, you remove Israel's place in the Bible, you take passages of Scripture that are written specifically to Israel and apply it as though it is to you. Number one, it makes you a thief. Makes you a... Well, I was trying to think of some other colonial term. Makes you a colonist. But some colonists were good. That wasn't what I was going for. Forget that. Disregard that. But you start taking things that belong specifically to Israel, it makes you a thief. You're saying that you're a Jew when in reality you are not a Jew because there are certain things, as we're seeing on Sundays, there are certain things in the Bible that are written to Israel that are not written to you. It's for you. You can glean things from it in a devotional sense, but it's not written to you. The letter is not to you. It doesn't have your name on it. Now, how does this all work in? There's a doctrine that's out there called replacement theology. If you want to write this down, maybe you want to feel led of the Spirit to do some other research and studying on your own. Theology. It's hard to talk and write at the same time. Replacement theology is what we already talked about, stating that the church has replaced Israel. And where that kind of comes into play is that, as I kind of already mentioned in weeks past, there are certain passages of the Old Testament that have not been fulfilled yet in our life. They have not come to fruition yet, but they will one day. So a long time ago, a couple of guys who held fast to a Bible and looked at those passages said, huh, you know, what do we do with a passage like Joel chapter 2 when it talks about how uh, that the Spirit will descend and be poured upon on all men? And when it's poured upon all men, that they, will, that they will dream dreams and that they will have visions and that they will prophesy. What do we do with a passage like that? Because that really hasn't taken place in our time yet. And then you have some other misguided idealists who go, huh, well, what do you do with the land? Because in Genesis chapter 12, God said to Abraham that I will give you and your seed the land of Israel. And in Genesis 13, where God says, look up, look, Abraham, everywhere your eye sees, I will give you that land. What do we do with passages like that where in the minor prophets towards the end of the Old Testament, God is saying things like, I'm going to give you back the land, Israel. More on that later tonight. Well, if God's done with Israel, and we see in other places of the Bible that the church is kind of like a spiritual picture of a Jew, we've received the spiritual blessings, I guess that means that all those passages in the Old Testament now applies to us. And that those promises are for and to us. And so we get to take those things and we get to develop doctrines based upon misapplying those scriptures. And in specific cases, remember when we were talking through church history about the Crusades and the Inquisitions? Yeah, there was a lot of things going on there. Satan was persecuting Christians because he hates Christians. 
and he wanted to do everything he could to stop the propagating of the Word of God. But what else was happening, for those of you who know history or remember back to that class, what else was happening during the Crusades and the Inquisitions? What, were they, what was the church and the empire that was in charge of that time trying to get back to? It's a specific piece of land, the Holy Land. Go ahead, Ben. Yeah, the Catholic Church was trying to take back Jerusalem, trying to take back the Holy Land to claim it as their own. Because when you start comparing Scripture with Scripture, and we've done this on Sundays and Wednesdays, we see that the primary theme of the Bible is not the gospel. It is not Jesus Christ coming to the cross to pay the price of sin for all of mankind. That is the riches that we receive. More on that again later. But it's not the central theme. The theme has always been about that land and the Son of God, the promised seed in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, who would come and would rightfully sit on the throne in that land where He would rule and reign for all of eternity from that land. And ever since God promised that land to Abraham and his seed, Satan tried to counter and stop it. Hence, Ishmael. Satan heard the promise was going to go to Isaac. But Ishmael, God tempted Ab or Satan tempted Abraham to not wait to have a child with someone who wasn't his wife, and it was Ishmael. And Ishmael has been fighting Isaac for that land ever since. Same thing with Jacob and Esau, as we saw in chapter 9. Esau has been fighting Jacob for that land ever since. Because Satan has always been trying to get his son on the throne in Israel just as God has been establishing and trying to establish His Son to be on the throne in Israel. That is the entire picture that's going on here. Do you see why that's just a small glimpse as to why these three chapters that Paul takes this little break in his discourse about sound doctrine in the church in the New Testament age, why these three chapters are so important? Because in other words, it's almost like he's saying, hey, in the midst of all these Christian teachings that we're getting into, a chapter 6, 7, 8, we can't forget the fact that God is not done with Israel. We can't forget the fact that every single day, the struggles that you guys face, the people that are constantly making fun of you as to why you wouldn't skip an activity to go to church, people that are constantly making fun of you for going on a missions trip where there are already supposed Christians down there, the reason you guys experience things like that is because it's all a battle over a throne. Because if Satan can get you guys to stop doing your job, then that means he's getting one step closer to setting his son, his man, the Antichrist, up on the throne in Israel. If he can stop you from getting your job. I'll prove that to you tonight if you don't see it. Everything you go through, it's all back to the battle for the throne and what God is doing in that land with those people. Now, I've had a rough day, a rough week, as I know some of you have. I'm feeling a little scatterbrained myself right now. 
But did that make sense before we go further? Yes. Okay, good. So with that in mind, let's go and look at verse 1. We're going to see here in point one on your outline, the branches were broken off. He's going to go through the past again, kind of dipping in with a little bit of what we talked about in chapter 9. He's going to talk about the reason for their fall and their glimmer of hope. Follow along with me, verse 1. I say then, hath God cast away His people? What's the answer? I'm telling you guys, you'd be amazed and shocked as to how many pastors and Bible supposed experts will say, no, He's done with them. You will be shocked. Because every false doctrine that comes twisting the Bible comes from this idea of God is done with them. All of those promises belong to us. For I also, verse 1, am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin. God hath not cast away his people which he foreknew. What? Ye not that what the scriptures saith of Elias? Do you not know what the Bible says of Elijah? That's the New Testament Greek into English form of Elijah. How he maketh intercession to God against Israel, saying, Lord, they've killed all thy prophets and dig down thine altars, and I am left alone, and they seek my life. But what saith the answer of God unto him? Great question. What does the Bible say? I have reserved to myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to the image of Baal. Even so then, at this present time, Paul's back to speaking now, also there is a remnant according to the election of grace. And if by grace, then it is no more of works. Otherwise, grace is no more grace. But if it be of works, then it is no more grace. Otherwise, work is no more work. Don't be confused by the way he worded that. He's basically saying, hey, salvation's by grace. If it was by works, then it wouldn't be by grace. And he's already made the point that it's by grace. Salvation's not of your good works, not of keeping the law, which is what Israel was so dead set on doing. So when he talks about Elias here, or Elijah and Baal, somebody tell me from Sunday school class, what is the story that's going on here? Anybody remember? What happened to our man Elijah? What's he most famous for? Elijah... It's in the Bible. Well, it's a good song. But it's called The God Contest. I say that because it's a book we have at home that we read for Wyatt. It's a God contest between God, the Lord God, and Baal. You had the prophets of Baal on one side. You had Jehovah God and his man Elijah on the other side. And Elijah says, let's put it to the test. Let's see who the real God is. Let's build an altar. Let's have a sacrifice on it, and we'll call down to our respective God to bring fire down and consume the offering. And whoever answers will know who the real God is. So that's what happens. Only who answered? Was it Baal? No, it was Jehovah God. Elijah had this humongous victory. He had this great open-door opportunity where he got to preach and present his God to the lost for all to see. Great victory in the Lord, a great win for his God. Many of you this week had great victories with conversations that you had with people. How'd it go after that? How'd it go after you guys got back from the mall? Was it all peachy, hunky-dory? Or was there some opposition? Maybe not from others, but maybe even just internally. Yeah, same thing happened with Elijah too. He hears, that, he hears that Jezebel was going to come for his head. 
So what does he do after this great victory? Same thing that you and I do from time to time. We run. We have a great victory from God. We get a little bit of fire, a little bit of persecution, a little bit of heat turned up in our lives, and we decide to chuck it. We'll still show up on Sundays and Wednesdays. But devotion throughout the week? No. Hold your place here. Turn over to 1 Kings chapter 19. Same thing happens with us. Point one on your outline under letter A. After all they've put God through, God is not done with Israel. We'll make that point very true or very clear by the end of the night. Check out Psalm 89 later on your own. It's an amazing passage where God's just saying, I made a covenant with these people. I'm not about to break it. Covenant is another word for promise. Does God give you promises that He's never going to leave you, never going to forsake you? That if greater is He that is in you than he that is in the world, and if He be for you, who can be against you? Those showed up in Romans chapter 8 we looked at a couple weeks ago. He makes you promises. He's not going to break His covenant. Although He will chastise you. That's what that passage is all about. So if God's not done with Israel yet, if this is true for Israel, how much more for you? Being a son or a daughter of God. He's not done for, with you. You know, you have on there the first bullet point, Luke 15, talking about the prodigal son. He squandered his inheritance. He was a son. He was a child of the king. And you know what he did? Ran away and squandered his inheritance on pleasures of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life, wasted it away lived his life for him. And when he came back to the Lord, when he came back to his father, did his father forsake him and cast him off? No. In fact, the father ran to meet him, fell upon him and kissed him, put his robe on him, put his arms around him and said, kill the fatted calf. My son is returned. On your outline, there may be times, actually, no, Guaranteed, there will be times where you'll feel alone like Elijah. You know what you do? You get alone with God. 1 Kings chapter 19. So Elijah's hiding out in this mountain. He's scared. I mean, after God, what God just did for him, he's scared of the words of Jezebel. Look at verse 11. God said, Go forth and stand upon the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by. And a great and strong wind rent the mountains, blew them away. God was moving, and man was it felt. And break in pieces the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. The Lord rocked His world, made the ground shake beneath Him. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire Lit a fire inside. You know what I think about when I think about these three things? It's camp. It's camp. Summer camp. Winter camp. Wanting to, to have a mighty message from God that it just rocks you and moves you and stirs you. That it shakes the ground underneath you. That it lights a fire inside of you. But in all these things, the Lord was not in the fire. He did those things, but He wasn't in it. But look at the end of verse 12. And after the fire, a still small voice. 
I mean, case in point, the fiery, earthquaking, wind-blowing messages of this past summer. How many of you guys remember those moments? Remember those parts of it? But those particular things that God said to each and every single one of you in your hearts, that still small voice where He was speaking just to you, not to anyone else, that was where He was speaking. That's where He is. When you get alone with Him, and I love it. Look at Elijah's reaction. It was so when Elijah heard it, verse 13, that he wrapped his face in his mantle and went out and stood in the entering of the cave. He was broken. And behold, there came a voice unto him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? What are you doing here? Has God mentioned that to you? Has God asked you that recently? What are you doing here? Why are we having this conversation again? Why are you doubting my protection and what I'm able to do? Did you forget what I just did? The victory of the conversation, how I spoke for you in certain cases and gave you the answers to speak to that, to that person or to this friend or, or any of those cases? Did you forget the seeds that I planted in the listeners to the people that were just passerbys of the conversation you had? Did you forget those things that I did? You know what I'm capable of doing? What are you doing here? Why are you afraid? Why are you scared to trust me with the next step? See, it's in moments like that where we need to get alone with God. Psalm 46.10. I know Heather shared this with the girls not too long ago. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the heathen. I will be exalted in the earth. There are times where in the midst of all of the ruckus that's going on, this time of year especially, where you have party after party, after friend hangout, after friend hangout, after family gathering, yada, yada, yada. Make sure you don't neglect to get alone and be with God. It's vital. It's important. All right, flip back to Romans chapter 1. So this story in 1 Kings 19 shows up here in Romans chapter 11. Did I say chapter 1? Yeah. Romans 11, sorry. This story shows up here. Because if you were to keep reading in 1 Kings 19, you'd see that Elijah, what's breaking and burdening his heart is that he feels like he's alone. He feels like there's nobody else that's doing the work with him. And God has to remind him, no, there's still a remnant. I'm not done I know that many of your own people, they forsook. They stopped walking with me. I know that, he says. I still have a small, faithful few who have not given up. And when you're feeling that way, that's why we have moments like tonight where we share the opportunities that other people are having to encourage those of you who didn't share that, but you did have something happen. Huh, I'm not alone on this. And to encourage those of you to get out there and to share. So look at verse 7. He says, What then? Israel hath not obtained that which he seeketh for, but the election hath obtained it. And we've seen already that those who are elect, it's to serve. God uses the church to serve. We've obtained, and the rest were blinded, he says. According as it is written, God hath given them, Israel, the spirit of slumber, eyes that they should not see. doesn't say could not and ears that they should not hear doesn't say could not should not implies choice could not implies you don't have a choice in the matter it says should not hear fy information 
That's supposed to be funny. And David, verse 9, saith, Let their table be made a snare and a trap and a stumbling block and a recompense unto them. Let their eyes be darkened that they may not see and bow down their back alway. Wow. So he talks about this remnant here, but then he goes on and says, yes, there is still a remnant. There were some Jews during this time in history that they saw the Messiah. They heard the preaching of Peter and Paul, and they decided, you know what? I think we did miss the boat. I think that Jesus guy was actually our Messiah. I'm going to choose to believe. There were some, that remnant, who got saved, but by and large... The nation, they rejected him. Why? Because point number two on your, in your outline. When you reject truth, you receive a lie. The reason why there's not many Jews coming to Christ today is because of these years and years of them rejecting God and rejecting His Word in the Old Testament as our example. But especially during the time of Christ. How many miracles after miracles after miracles he did to the Pharisees, to the Sadducees, to the Sanhedrin council, to all of the leaders of Israel in that day. And they didn't receive his words or anything that he did. They rejected him. They refused to believe that he was their Lord and Messiah. And there's something that happens in John chapter 9. And it's talked about throughout the rest of the New Testament, especially here. And it's called judicial judgment. You know what happened in John chapter 9? Jesus heals a blind man. And the blind man goes and he witnesses to his parents and everything like that. And they bring the parents into it, all that stuff. And blind man's like, look, man, I don't know. All I know is I once was blind. Now I see. I know that this man was the one who delivered me from the darkness. And so Jesus starts talking to them. And he starts talking about how, you know what? Uh... <laughs> I've come to give light to those who are willing to receive it. But to the blind, they're going to remain in their blindness still. And you know what the Pharisees had the audacity to say to Christ? You can check it out at the end of John 9 later. They say, are we blind too? And he goes, well, because you say you see, your blindness remains. From that moment in John chapter 9, and you can check it out in the other passages of the Gospels, where that takes place, that's around the time where he starts speaking in parables. And they're confused the rest of the time. Because they've rejected the truth up until that point, And he stops going with them and he only spends his time with those who are willing to listen. John chapter 12 is another example. You can check that out later. Turn over to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 though. Let's bring it home more directly to you and I, because you and I aren't exempt from this happening to us. 1 Thessalonians, talking about when Christ comes for the church in the rapture. And in 2 Thessalonians, we see the latter half of that coming, if you will, because when Christ comes back in the rapture, he, it's not called the second coming because his foot doesn't actually come down and touch the ground. But when he actually touches foot on Mount Zion, that's the second coming of the Lord. Second Thessalonians is talking about that. That's the day of the Lord. That is the coming of Christ, the second coming. And he starts off in chapter 2 talking about, man, you know what? There's a lot of people who say they're of us, who say that they believe and teach the things that we do. But you know what they're doing? They're forging a letter as though it's from Paul. And they're saying that Paul wrote it when Paul actually didn't write it. 
Paul wrote letters that Peter would later call in 2 Peter 3, Scripture. And there were people writing letters as though Paul wrote it, and they called it Scripture. And it was deceiving people as to the day of the Lord had actually occurred when it really didn't. I got news for you. The same thing still happens today. Something that's called Scripture is still presented as though it's from God, from Paul, but it's really not. So people were confused about the second coming of Christ and when was it going to happen and when are we going to see the Antichrist? 2, Timothy, or 2 Thessalonians 2 is very, very good on that. Look at verse 8. He says, Then shall that wicked, the Antichrist, be revealed, whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth and shall destroy with the brightness of his coming. Even him, verse 9, whose coming is after the working of who? With all power and signs and lying wonders. Remember when I was talking about Joel chapter 2 earlier? About how churches look at that passage about the Spirit of the Lord pouring out upon people and they shall prophesy and they shall dream dreams and they shall have visions. Yeah, that's called signs and wonders today in the church that purports that. Bible just said here in verse 9 that when the Antichrist is on the scene, he's going to use the same exact tactics to get people to follow him. Side note. But it says lying wonders. Verse 10. This is what I want you to see. With all deceivableness of unrighteousness in them that perish. Oh, these people that follow the Antichrist, they're going to perish. Why? Because they received not the love of the truth that they might be what? And for this cause, verse 11, God shall send them strong delusion that they should believe a lie, that they all might be damned. That's harsh words. People always give the Bible garbage. They always give it crap because they say, oh, the Old Testament, you should read the New Testament. It's a lot lighter. We're in the New Testament. That's a pretty harsh statement there. That they all might be damned. Why? Because they believed not the truth, but had pleasure in what? Man, I guess that's as good a place as any to stop and just say, if you're in here today and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, that you've never trusted in Him as your Lord, tonight would be a great night to do that. In light of what we just read, Because those of you who might be thinking, I'm just going to have fun right now. I'm just going to do my own thing. And when I see that come, when I see that day happen, ugh, man, it'll stink. But you know what? I'll get right with God then. Maybe you won't. Because according to what we just read, look at it again. With all deceivableness and lying wonders, you are going to believe a lie. Because if you're not willing to receive God's gracious offering of truth now, what makes you say you're going to do it then? If you're, not, if you're going to spit into His face and reject truth now, you deserve the lie. That's what Israel did. They had Christ on this earth and they were with Him for 33 years. His disciples were with him for three 
years, every day, and they still abandoned him when he needed them the most. You reject truth, you receive a lie. And God right now is letting you know that in order for you to not see that day, you need to call upon Him to save you. And to do it now. Because you don't know when verse 25 of Romans 11 might just be around the corner. The fullness of the Gentiles become in. Let's move on. Letter B. Their fall that we just read about when they chose to reject truth, it led to our riches in Christ. Look at point one. Their national rejection of the Messiah, it paved the way for Gentiles to receive Christ. We've talked about this before. We won't belabor the point, but look at verse 11. Paul says, I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? God forbid, but rather through their fall, their nation being rejected as the vehicle for providing the gospel, salvation has come unto the Gentiles. For to provoke them to what? Is everybody still in verse 11? Jealousy. Now, if the fall of them be the riches of the world and the diminishing of them the riches of the Gentiles, how much more their fullness? In other words, when he brings them back, he's thrown out a little carrot, a little teaser of what he's going to say at the end of this chapter. For I speak to you Gentiles, inasmuch as I am the apostle of the Gentiles, I magnify mine office. If by any means I may provoke to emulation, that means jealousy, them which are my flesh, Jews, and might save some of them. Again, in these three chapters, we've seen over and over again, he's actually started off all three chapters talking about his burden for his people, for the Israelites, for the Jews. He loves them. He wants them to get saved. He's willing so much to do so much. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, he's willing to become all things to all men that he might by all means save how many? Some, what are you willing to do? What are you willing to do just to get one person to come to winter camp? Just one person. Start there. And when you get that commitment, see if you can go for two. What are you willing to do? What kind of awkward, uneasy conversations are you willing to have because of a burden for them? Paul, he wanted to preach the gospel more and more to the Gentiles to the effect that it would have jealousy on the Jews. They'd be want to be like, wait, so what is this that's going on here? Maybe I misunderstood. You know, I only heard from my friend about this guy who called himself the Messiah, but then they killed him, and so I just thought nothing of it. But, but what is it that you're... You guys seem very, very passionate about it. It's almost as though you believe it unto the death. In fact, I've heard about a couple of you guys who have died because you believed it so much. Can you tell me more about it? You guys ever have friends who have been like that? Where that you've had conversations with other people around you, and they're like, hey, can you tell me more? I'll tell you what, that was one of the things that led to my salvation. I didn't start going to church until I was 13 years old, but I remember going to church. I didn't know anything about the Bible, but I did know one thing. The guy who was up front teaching in the junior high believed everything he was saying here to the point that you could feel the passion in his heart, you could feel the passion in his voice, that he would have gone to his death believing the things that are in this book. Who would do that for something they didn't believe? Who would do that for a lie? It caused me to want to know more. It caused me to want to figure out, what is this Christianity really about? These guys aren't just doing it just to gain favor or gain points with God. No, they really believe what's in this book. 
and I want to know more about it. I want to see and I want to know what it is that they have that makes them different. I'm telling you guys, the way you live your lives, the way you walk down the aisleways, the kind of conversations you do and don't get into at school, the kind of things that you don't entertain through your ears, or the kind of crowd that you don't hang out with, people notice those things and it causes them to want to know more about what makes you different. It's jealousy. They want what you have because they don't have the peace that passes the understanding that you guys have. They don't have the closeness, the assurance of where they're going to go when they take their final breath on this earth. And that's what happened with the nation of Israel. When they rejected the Messiah, it paved the way for us Gentiles to get saved. Number two, while we have benefited from being a spiritual descendant of Abraham, God will resurrect what he began with Israel. Look at verse 15. For if the casting away of them be the reconciling of the world, what shall the receiving of them be? But life from the dead. For if the first fruit be holy, Israel, Abraham, the lump is also holy, everybody that came after Abraham. And if the root be holy, so are the branches, the remnant that he's talking about here. And if some of the branches be broken off, and thou, being a wild olive tree, wert graft in among them, and with them partakest of the root and fatness of the olive tree, boast not against the branches. But if thou boast, thou bearest not the root, but the root thee. I knew I was forgetting something. There was a video I wanted to show you guys that kind of helped paint the picture of what he's describing here. And I had it, and I completely forgot to put it in the slideshow. So what he's kind of talking about here is it's this process known as grafting. Any of you guys? I wish Megan was here. She'd be a, You know? Caleb knows everybody. Jaden knows. Oh, okay. So I guess it's more common than what I thought. Does somebody want to raise their hand and share it very clearly and plainly for everybody else? Jaden, go ahead. If you take a harder tree that grows better and stronger, you like cut it at an angle and graft it with like another tree. Yeah. And they grow together. Exactly. And specifically in this case, if a tree is not bearing forth fruit, you take a part from a tree that is, graft it into the unfruitful tree, and it starts doing that, and vice versa. It was really neat. I, it's just, it's mind-boggling, because you're thinking, oh, it's wood. You cut wood, it dies. But the way this video worked out, it was really cool. Like, it just, the guy literally took a tree from, or a branch from another tree, and put it into this one that he wedged in, and the thing started bearing fruit. It actually molded itself and became part of this other tree. It was the craziest thing. The picture that he's giving here is that this is exactly what happened with the Gentiles. The olive tree, a picture of Israel, the branches that rejected Christ were broken off and Gentiles were grafted in. But he's saying boast not because he says, hey, if I'm able to take out the original branches, I'm able also to put them back in which is a warning to the church, which is why 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 is a warning to the church to make sure they're going out and preaching against false doctrine lest people believe, well, I'll just get saved after the rapture of the church happens. Mm, probably not. 
So point two, I already kind of mentioned that. But he talks about bringing them back again from the dead. Look again at verse uh, 15. If the casting away of them be the reconciling of the world, what shall the receiving of them be but life from the dead? Ezekiel 37, the infamous passage about the dry bones. We call out the dry bones, come alive. That is exactly how Lauren Daigle sounds, and I will do that every time Ezekiel 37 is brought up. Yes, she sounds just like Adele, and I sounded just like Adele there. Anywho, this is a beautiful passage. That is a beautiful passage talking about these, this bone graveyard coming up back to life. A beautiful picture of what happened to you and I at the moment of our salvation. And it's a picture of what's going to happen one day to the nation of Israel because God's not done with them yet. Look at verse 19. Thou wilt say then, the branches, Israel, were broken off that I might be grafted in because it's all about me. A, a, a mindset that thinks that the Bible is, the, the central theme of the Bible is the gospel, it only lends itself to this. That Christ died for me, and that this whole book is written to me. It's all for you, but it's not all written to you. It's all for me, and it's all to me. And that Christ died for me, and He just wants me to be happy, so that I can live a great life for Him, and so that I can go to whatever college I want, and I can make that decision, and I can choose who I'm going to date, and who I'm going to marry, and who I hang around with, and I'm going to be able to present Christ and make Christ look good there. All noble things, but did you notice the one word that kept being said over and over and over and over and over and over again? It's I. When you look at this book through the lens of what Acts 3 talks about and what is found in every single book of the Bible, the battle for the throne and the king sitting on his throne in Jerusalem, ruling and reigning forever, getting the worship that he deserves that he didn't get when he came here this first time, that's when sights come off of you and go on him. And you realize that's about him and what he deserves. And when you cross-reference that in with what we've looked at already in Romans 6, and the fact that our salvation wasn't about me living my life for Christ, but it was about me recognizing my deadness so that he lives his life through me, accomplishing his will for what he wants to do, that's when you start to see things from an eternal perspective. See... We say this, verse 19, the branches were broken off that I might be grafted in. Uh, well, well, because of unbelief they were broken off. You're kind of right there. And thou standest by faith. Be not high-minded. Don't think it's all about you, but fear. For if God spared not the natural branches, please someone tell me what the next two words are. Take heed lest he also spare not who? church, Gentile. Behold therefore the goodness and severity of God on them which fell severity, but toward thee goodness, if thou continue in his goodness. Otherwise, thou also shall be cut off. You see, the branches have been grafted back in. Look on your study sheet there. You see letter B.2? While we benefit from being a spiritual descendant of Abraham, God will resurrect what he began with Israel. See how there's an ellipsis there? That means that it, the sentence continues in letter A of point two. 
He will resurrect what He began in Israel because the same thing that happened to them will happen with us. I'm sorry. The same thing that happened to them will happen with us leading up to the rapture. See, in point one, the same spirit of unbelief which comes from a lack of closeness in our walk with Christ, that's going to happen to us. Same spirit of unbelief. Somebody tell me what Romans 10, 17 says. We just looked at it last week. Verse every Christian should have memorized. So then faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. You want faith? You want to continue to grow in your faith? You want to believe? It's got to come through the Word of God. Otherwise, in Hebrews 11.6, without faith, it is what? Possible to please Him. You might want to mark note of that, those two verses in your Bible. Without faith, it's impossible to please Him, and faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. In other words, if you wanted to connect the dots there, it's impossible to please God apart from the Word of God. That's right. You better be in His Word. But not only that, this same spirit of unbelief it comes from a lack of closeness in our walk with Christ, the Word of God. I was reminded in Luke chapter 17, the disciples, they were talking. God shared this parable with them. And you know what their response was? You know what their prayer was? And I hope it's a prayer that you guys take with you tonight and tomorrow and the next day. It's a question of, will you be found faithful when He returns? Because the disciples said, the apostles said unto the Lord, Lord, increase our faith. You don't want the spirit of unbelief that causes you to walk away from him like the nation of Israel did. You better stay close to his word because faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. If you want to grow and increase your faith, you better be in the word of God. Otherwise, the very next chapter might be what he says of you. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man cometh, shall he find Faith on the earth? Faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. Well, I wonder if there's going to be a, a shortage of the Word of God on the planet when He comes back. I wonder if there's going to be a shortage of people walking by faith, which means they're not walking and reading in the Bible. It means they're not praying, increase our faith, Lord. What about you? If God were to come back tonight, will He find faith on the earth? Would He find you faithful? Hmm. Because when He came for Israel the first time, they weren't. Came unto his own, and his own received him not. They didn't receive the words that he was saying. They weren't taking what he said and applying it to their lives. They heard it. You ever just look at the Gospels? A lot of people heard a lot of what Jesus said. They were around him all the time. In fact, the Pharisees were probably around Christ more than Christians go to church these days. They heard more of the Word of God than a lot of people do today. It's not about hearing. It's about keeping, as we just saw this past Sunday, keeping the Word of God. 
doing what it says, that's how you increase your faith. That's how you walk by faith, and that's how you please God by faith. What about you? Will be because, in, point, in the first bullet point there, will be because of our failure to occupy till He comes as good stewards. Been a while since I brought that up. We have a, a theme for the entire year as a church. Our theme this year is Occupy Till I Come. Talked about it a lot in 2 Peter chapter 1. Talked about it a lot in our study of Revelation. Talked about it a lot in the summertime. Our entire theme had to do with that. When was the last time you guys looked at Luke 19? Did you forget the fact that after the rapture of the church, before God reinstates the nation of Israel as His vehicle and vessel to present truth, that right after the rapture happens, you and I are going to give an account of our service here on this earth and what we did for Him? I don't know if you guys ever contemplated this or not. You know, we talked before about dispensations, the time in which God dispenses His grace different ways through different covenants, different times, etc. and so forth. Do you know that at the end of each dispensation before going into the next one, you know at the end of that dispensation is always marked by failure? And failure by the steward of that dispensation? You know what 1 Corinthians 4, 1 and 2 says? Let a man so account of us as of the ministers of Christ, that's you and me, and stewards of the mysteries of God. Someone who's over the household. Someone who's responsible for the master's things. That's what a steward is. Moreover, it is required in a steward that a man be found. What? You ever think that the reason we're going to be raptured is because we failed in our mission? We failed to do what God asked us to do? Oh, I don't want that to be said of us. But when I look at the Bible, it kind of seems like that's the running theme. Man. You know, look at that verse again in verse 12. Now, if the fall of them be the riches of the world and the diminishing of them, Israel, the riches of the Gentiles, how much more their fullness? In other words, how much, how much more rich and, and, and vast is it going to be when God goes back to the nation of Israel after we're taken out of here? In other words, we are in the way and God needs to get us out of the way. You know what I thought about when I looked at that this week? The how much more aspect, their fullness. You realize that there is no scope to the magnitude of the work that the nation of Israel is going to do after we're out of here? We talked about it before, 144,000 Jewish witnesses in Revelation, Moses and Elijah, all of the converts are going to lead the greatest missionary trip that has ever been done since the Philadelphian church period. How much more their fullness, they're going to get a lot done for God because we weren't. You want a goal to live by? Live your life to the point that you're going to be missed. Your influence is going to be missed once you're raptured. Live your life to the point where God is like, man, if there was one person I wish I could keep down there on that earth, be them. Those are goals for you. So point number two, we'll make this quick. Got it all bulleted there. 
Oh, man. You know, there was... I remember Pastor Jay, I was talking with him a couple months ago, and he was like, man, JBI, when we covered the book of Romans from a ministry standpoint, that class had the most questions in it. And it was like, just everyone just always was asking questions because it's so deep of a book. I hope you guys understand, we are literally... This is a shotgun of buckshot on this chapter. We could spend 12 weeks just talking about the things that are in this chapter. This is huge, and we're passing over a lot. But I want you guys to get the main things. I want you guys to get the gist of this. But look with me in verse 23. And they also, Israel, if they abide not still in unbelief, shall be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. For if thou wert cut out of the olive tree, which is wild by nature, and wert grafted contrary to nature into a good olive tree... In other words, Gentiles didn't fit the plan. It was supposed to be the nation of Israel. But God made us fit the plan. How much more shall these, which be the natural branches, be grafted into their own tree? It's going to be a lot easier, in other words, God is saying, for me to reinstitute them into their own tree. We already read verse 25. I would not, brethren, that ye should be ignorant of this mystery, lest ye should be wise in your own conceits, that blindness in part is happened to Israel. Right now at this time, they make up a large proportion of some of the most atheistic, agnostic people on the planet. They don't believe there's a God, or they have no assurance that there's a God. To this day, it's known common knowledge. Blindness in part has happened to them until the fullness of the Gentiles become in a rapture. And so, all Israel shall be saved... As it is written, there shall come out of Sion the deliverer and shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant unto them, which when I shall take away their sins. I put on here a whole bunch of passages you can look to in the Old Testament. We'll take a look at a few of them on the screen here. But in point two, Israel will replace the church as his vessel of service after the rapture. Here in Jeremiah chapter 30, verse 10. I have a lot of blue on here because it encompasses a lot of what we just looked at in Romans 11. This is Israel, pre the rapture and post the rapture. Therefore fear thou not, O my servant Jacob, saith the Lord, neither be dismayed, O Israel. Do you see that? Jacob, he calls Jacob Israel because Jacob's name was turned to Israel. He's speaking about nations here. We talked about that in Romans chapter 9. Don't miss that. Saith the Lord, neither be dismayed, O Israel, for lo, I will save thee from afar, and thy seed from the land of their captivity. And Jacob shall return and shall be in rest, millennium, and be quiet, and none shall make him afraid. For I am with thee, saith the Lord, to save thee. Though I make a full end of all nations, whither I scattered thee. You want a fun encyclopedia search? Check out in the Old Testament all the enemies of Israel and see if they're still around today. Yet will I not make a full end of thee. But I will correct thee in measure and will not leave thee altogether unpunished. You have right there the rest of the book of Revelation in Romans chapter 11, all within those two verses. Check it out. Here's some bullet points. You know where this all began? They were miraculously brought back to their homeland in 1948 due to the events of World War I and World War II. Why is that significant? Because them returning back to the land was the last prophecy of Scripture to be fulfilled 
prior to the rapture. There's literally nothing else that we're waiting for. Nothing. Clock's ticking. World War I, the Balfour Declaration, telling them, hey, we have this land. It is for you, Jewish people. It is for you, the nation of Israel. You can go to it. But they didn't. And you know what ended up happening? They ended up going into a land of captivity where they were corrected because they didn't want to go home because they had made quite a name and quite a fortune for themselves in Europe at the time. They didn't want to go home. And God said, it's time for you to go home. Even if I have to put you through tribulation in the form of a holocaust, it's time for you to go back home. And that they did in 1948. Oh man, the significance of that year. I don't have the time to go into it. As a little teaser for you guys, those of you guys who want to run with this. Remember a couple Sundays ago, we were talking about uh, the prince and the power of the air and talking about that sea of glass and that third heaven and all the things. It seems like that's the playground for Satan and the demonic forces in the air. You guys want to know when the first sighting of a UFO occurred? 1948. Mm -hmm. You know what, where the science fiction craze came from? In the 1950s as more of these things started happening. The video games you guys play, some of the shows you guys watch, the, the movies, books you guys are into, board games that you are into, a lot of that craze of science fiction all comes from the 1950s when all these weird, strange things started happening in the sky once Satan realized, oh boy, clock's a ticking. He's not messing around. Why are we? You can check that out later. But here's some, oh, I gotta point this out to you. Uh, for those who say that it's not about the land, you hear that a lot in, po in politics. They say that it's all about equality. They say that it's as just as much as the Arab nations as it is Israel. It's as much as the Arabs as it is the Jews. Um, here are all of the Arab lands, and Iran should be green there. This is called the Ummah. It's the Arab nations. And this little sliver here is the nation of Israel. Don't let anyone tell you that it's not about the land. It's definitely about the land. It's been about the land since Genesis chapter 12. Satan wants to sit his man on that throne. It belongs to the Lord and his people. But I thought this was neat. God prophesying His people coming back miraculously. Therefore say, thus saith the Lord God, although I have cast them far off among the heathen, and although I have scattered them among the countries, yet will I be to them as a little sanctuary in the countries where they shall come. He protected them, even in those other countries. Therefore say, thus saith the Lord God, I will even gather you from the people and assemble you out of the countries where ye have been scattered, and I... God is speaking, will give you the land of Israel. Even if you want to entertain the argument, probably Mrs. Stone, even if you want to entertain the argument that the Palestinians, which aren't really people, it's just other Arabs, were there first, I believe what the Bible says and God says that land belongs to Israel. But they weren't there first. That's beside the point. Second bullet point. The time of Jacob's trouble, which is the tribulation period, that will occur 
where they will be tested and tried. This takes place after the rapture. You can check those passages out later. He's using it as a time to correct them, to get them to see that they rejected him for all this long, but because his mercy is so great, he's not done with them yet. He's going to use 144,000 witnesses in Revelation chapter 14. He's going to use Moses and Elijah and their converts in Romans chapter, or Revelation chapter 11, sorry, and they're going to lead the greatest missionary activity of all time. And those in Israel who survive the tribulation will be converted and saved miraculously. This is detailed in what's known as the New Covenant or the Millennial Reign. We talked about that when we covered dispensationalism and how to study the Bible. Check out those passages later. I'm telling you guys, an entire quarter we could spend just on those passages. It's so deep. I'm giving you the practical and how it applies to you guys in your life. But you also need to know some doctrine. Letter B as we close. Consider them, Israel, beloved enemies until that day. Why would you say such a thing? Well, because the Bible says it. Look at verse 28. As concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. Concerning the gospel, as I already mentioned, it's just the way it is. But because of their unbelief and their hard hearts, Jewish people and the nation of Israel make up some of those atheistic and agnostic people throughout the entire planet. They're enemies pertaining to the gospel. But, but, as touching the election, what God is going to do through them and through their service one day, they are beloved for the Father's sake. Do not neglect that because so many churches do. For the gifts and calling of God are without repentance. For as ye in times past have not believed God, yet have now obtained mercy through their unbelief, even so have these also now not believed that through your mercy they also may obtain mercy. For God hath concluded them all in unbelief that he might have mercy upon some, all. In light of that, oh, what a reaction to have. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who hath known the mind of the Lord? Who hath been his counselor? Who hath first given to him? And it shall be recompensed unto him again. For of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be glory forever. Amen. You see point one on this outline. At this moment, we are to treat them as you would any of your lost family members and friends. They are beloved enemies. And you do what Paul did in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. You become all things to all men that you might by all means save some. Get creative with your witnessing. Get creative with your gospel outreach. I don't know if any of you guys go to school with somebody who is Jewish, but man, you have a ton of Old Testament passages. You can take them here and show them how much God loves him, how much God loves her. Go there. Show them that. And be that creative with all of your lost friends and family members. And lastly, stand in awe and praise God for His matchless mercy and wisdom and love. If God's not done with everything that they have put Him through, there is nothing that you can do, nothing you can put Him through that will cause Him to be done with you. <laughs> kind of the catch-22, though. There is a point of no return with the hardness of your heart. 
But I've seen God take people who have been completely stubborn and hard-hearted, and He breaks them. But not everybody gets that mercy. I don't know if there's any sin that you're caught up in or anything crowd you're running with that you shouldn't be. But if you guys don't realize that you were on borrowed time and you don't shape up, on that day when you're standing before your king, it's going to be a lot of tears. A lot of tears of regret. A lot of tears of wasted time. And a lot of what could have been. Don't let that happen to you. And who knows? If we keep at it, and we keep doing what we're supposed to do, maybe, just maybe, God will prolong that rapture just a little bit and give us more opportunities and more chances to share Christ and more people to lead to Him. If we're faithful, let's pray.